Fuck pain. Fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, as poet Samantha Reynolds, who has written a poem a day since 2011, joins us for a chat, including the power of habit as a motivator, searching for magic in mundane things. There are as many approaches to parenting as there are parents, mindfulness, baby whisperers, and storytelling as a defining trait of being human. Here we go. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Hey guys, before we get started, this interview was via Zoom. And thanks to internet gremlins, there are parts that just aren't as clean as we would want them to be. But the conversation is too good not to share it with you. So the crackly parts don't last too long, but they are indeed unpleasant. I promise to do better next time. Apologies to Sam for her interview not being as clean as it should be. And to y'all as well. But it's a good one, so bear with us and here we go. Welcome back, everybody, to another fine episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast, episode 194. It's interview time today with the fascinating Samantha Reynolds, but we'll get to all that in a moment. But first, it's time to say hello to Daniele Bellelli from across the internet. Hello, Mr. Evers. Yes, we are, uh, it's in the middle of a crazy windstorm, raining stuff, so we're not going to do in-person things. We're going to try Zoom, hope the audio holds through and make it work. Um, why don't we say thank you to a sweet, few sweet folks who help with their wonderful products, starting with the nice people at Shore Design T-shirts who decided among, in addition to be cool to us, they just sponsor Savannah for our fight in one championship. Ooh, is there a new uh, so, shirt to go with it? No, nah, she just put their log on their on their rush guard and stuff. But uh, but they are awesome. They are so sweet, and uh, so that's deeply appreciated. So if you wanna check them out, Shore Design T-shirt. They are also they have the other side hat and pants. Funky, happy, the universe oh, will open up to you if you click on their websites. Beautiful, beautiful things there. Also check out grasslandbeef.com. They send us some of their amazing quality meats and all, all sort of. A, you, you go for the what's your thing that you call London broil? The London broil. Oh that's, man, it makes the best stews and chilies and stuff. I'm a big fan of bison. Bison oh, is man, uh, that's great too. My uh, reading so much about Lakota culture make bison taste automatically better before <laughs> you even put it into your into my mouth, but. Also, shout out to zebraathletics.com for providing the awesome mats that make up my home dojo. So if you're thinking of setting up a home workout area during COVID times, zebraathletics.com is the way to go. 
And thank you to the nice people who keep the drunk into the drunken Taoist. Aum Winery oh. and MateraWines.com. They have both been kind enough to send us some of the wonderful Dionysus blessed wines. And uh, we deeply appreciate it. Links to all of these folks are in the episode notes. Um, having said that, let's say we haven't really given props to the people supporting us for a while so we are gonna go i'm just gonna go right through this long list of sweet folks who donated in the last month and a half or so excellent let the pottering begin here we go we got benjamin eret lisa robles and nick zunik who both donated twice um uh, richard viola in memory of his father-in-law john wolf Thomas Hoffman, Gregory Richmond, and Thomas Robinson, Aistis Giusca, John Vergara, Nicola Togni, Samuele Rudelli, Jim D'Amico, Froggy Style Productions, all of the above were twice donors. We also got Michael McManus, uh, Bill Moraya, Lane Raper, Jesse Rantakangas, Yanni Linnima, Luis Peschiera, Aaron Weisner, Daniel Steen, Clayton Payne, Ian Danikan, Jonathan Waterloo, Stephen McKee, Christopher Parcel, Frederick Hahn, Ross Cranham, Philip Sorkov. You guys are fantastic. Love it so much. We really, really appreciate the support. Um, if you want to join this uh, sweet band of heroes, you can go at paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Again, that's paypal.me forward slash first letter of my first name, the letter D, and then my last name, B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Other way to support the podcast is to use our Amazon link. Easy way to remember it, so you don't have to look everywhere, is dbamazing.com, the letter D, the letter B, amazing.com. D-B-Amazing. Um, anything else we need to throw out there? Kiva.org continues to climb $170,000 in funded loans from your fellow listeners. Uh, join us at Kiva.org, join Team Drunken Dallas, and uh, put $25 out to help a stranger. You get it back. Beautiful. So on that note... Let's get the episode rolling. Hello. Hey, Rich. It's Sam here. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. What part of the world are you in? I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. Is it and how about, how about you? I'm in lovely Oxnard, California. I'm about uh, 40 miles north of LA. Nice. And the wind is blowing like crazy. Really? Yeah, somebody that uh, I know in LA said it's been like wet and kind of cold. Yeah. What's happening? How's it we're, going? We're up and running. It's very exciting. Yay. How are you doing, Sam? Good. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Samantha Reynolds here with us. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Um, For the sake of simplicity, since you are a very multi-talented human being who's doing 10,000 things at once, before we get the ball rolling in one of these directions, at least we'll pick something to start with. why don't you give our listeners a tiny bit of a taste of who you are, what you do, 
that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so I'll start with, uh, because this month marks 10 years of um, my daily poetry practice, which in many ways is a, a mindfulness practice. I just happen to pop a poem out at the end of each day. Um, but this is something I've been doing since I had my first baby uh, back a little over 10 years ago. And, and I had this experience, you know, everybody said, oh, this first year of your baby's life is so fleeting, you know, really make sure you savor it. Um, and I tried, um, but I, I'm a, I'm a crap meditator. Um, and, and I just felt like the days were rolling kind of tediously one into the next. Um, and it's not that having a new baby wasn't wonderful and, and miraculous. And I, you know, I didn't have any kind of significant, you know, postpartum depression. It just felt unexpectedly tedious. And I thought that's not okay. I, I need to find a way to inject more joy into, into this year. Um, my first year of motherhood. So what's always slowed me down and, and kind of woken me up at the same time is when I'm writing. Um, it's when I'm most alive and most, um, most just aware of, of the world unfolding around me. So I thought, well, what if I tried to write something every day? Uh, and the idea of journaling felt kind of open-ended and unsatisfactory. So I thought, um, I thought I'll write a poem. I'll try to write a poem every day for a year. Uh, and I was, I got hooked. Um, it was, it was really surprisingly transformative almost right away. Just, just cracking this experience of repetition and, um, and sort of enduring the, the tedium of this experience um, to one of of just being really alive to what was going on around me. And my circumstances didn't change, but my perspective changed. So, so that was 10 years ago and I just, I never stopped. So, so uh, 3,000 some points. Right? In, yeah. This like that. stack of poems in my wake. Um, Is that every day? Not even Sunday off on occasion? Not even in labor with my second baby. <laughs> um, wow. That's commitment. Right? <laughs> that's yeah. serious commitment. I don't have um, I don't have a gear for um, uh, moderation. It's not my moderation is not my superpower. You have to <laughs> shake it up on occasion, and maybe like 2017 was haiku year, or no, my poems never rhyme. Uh, they're sometimes short, um, and I stopped sharing them publicly for a while. I did find there was a period of time where um, I think a lot of people experience this when they're sharing their creativity publicly, they get um, sort of wedded to how they're received. Um, you know, my ego is just like anyone else's ego, I think. But I found it distorted the experience for a while there where um, I, was a, I was paying more attention to the kinds of poetry that seemed to resonate with people and less about what it was for, which was to wake me up. It almost sounds like the, the critics um, shaped the poetry at that point. Yeah, exactly. So I, I just wrote them uh, quietly and privately for a while. Um, and then uh, and then I would, I'd, you know, I'd reemerge from time to time and, and share um, publicly again. And and, uh, and I seem to have found my, found a, a stronger core these days where I can just be myself and, and write what comes up and 
for the time being at least not care as much, you know, how they land. What's beautiful is less about, um, you know, whether a poem moves someone or not. The kind of contagious effect of inspiring other people to do the same, whether it's like taking a photo every day or, um, or just like walking through life and noticing. And the, the people that have circled back with me and said, like, I do this now, you know, and, and, and it's transformative for me too. That's a very cool thing. So that's the poetry side of my life. Is this pen on paper or do you do it on a computer? Yeah, it's super unromantic. It's not even on a Mac. It's on my like clunky PC. I, I write notes on my phone through the day. And then at the, it's always been at the end of the day when my kids are asleep in an ergonomically shameful position on the couch. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's I would nice. love I would love if it was like an inky black pen and a beautiful journal. But yeah, I figured there's some serious calligraphy going on. No, so sadly, like, no. <laughs> how long does it take you, would you say? So they don't take me long um, at all. Like most I'll spend on a poem is about half an hour. And wow. the, best way, the best way I can describe it, it's like I'm a sponge and I've sort of soaked up the day and then I squeeze at the end of the day and a and a poem drops out like this the the noticing is actually the hardest part and it's a it's not always easy you know life is distracting that's wild though because i mean to me the way you make it sound is the poetry writing process sounds so healthy uh, to me it's like anything if i have to write uh, my grocery list is like giving birth it's like horrendously painful, slow and laborious, and each word comes out with groans and stuff. So the fact that you can do it like, I'll just go through my day, I absorb all these things, and then I just, boom, let it out in 15 minutes to half hour. In 15 minutes to half hour, I can't even sit down and look at the computer. You know what I mean? I'm just like, I'll be like, ah, I have to write now. I have to, man, I don't know. It's like, ben. I admire that so deeply, that ability to be so much healthier about this process than uh, my creative processes. I don't know. I think there's a lot of self-hatred there. So I like yours so much better. Yeah, I'm dying to know, uh, are you familiar with the, the book, The War of Art, Samantha? Yeah, I haven't read it, but I am familiar with it. Well, it, it could be put into a pamphlet or maybe even a note card. It's all about the resistance to getting anything done and that a lot of us would rather go get the grout cleaned in the kitchen than write one letter on a piece of paper. And you seem to have defeated this, so we must put this into a bottle and distribute it to the world. I could also, Daniele, not get into a ring and fight anybody. So, right, we all have like, we all have like the flow states that are easy for us. Um, but so writing, like, I recognize that that is a, a flow state for me. But mm -hmm. if, I, if I was, if I had to write one poem a month, mm -hmm. I would sweat over it. Mm. I would really, you know, even if I had to write one poem a week and I thought, okay, this is, this is my weekly statement. I would, I would not take me 15 minutes. Like there's something really freeing about releasing something creative every day because the stakes are really low. Like you've got tomorrow, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, that actually makes a lot of sense because you make it like you're alluding to the power of just habit building. And yes, it is so much easier to go work out every time at that time on a regular basis rather than if each time you have to find. I think that's probably where the resistance kicks in, is the motivation part, that when you fall into a state of um, 
I don't want to say inertia like it's a bad thing. Actually, in this case, a good thing. Like you have you have built a habit, and so it's by default you're gonna go and do it every day. That's it. There's nothing to it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to get motivated. That's just what you do, right? That makes things so much easier than instead trying to find that uh, I need to be inspired. I need to be motivated. I need to make it happen now. Like it seemed like that part psychologically is so much harder to um, to put to pull off than it is once you like even if you know if you meditate every day it's probably a lot easier to meditate every day at the same time than it is to say okay this week I'm gonna meditate twice at some point uh, there's something about I don't know if it's everybody that is like this or just some people but it seems that habit building is a huge thing that once something becomes a habit, it's so much easier to keep it going versus just having to have, uh, you know, having to kind of light up the fire each time anew. I almost think of it, you know, if you think of like hunting and gathering people, when you when you move camp, you don't let that fire go out and then you have to start again from scratch. You kind right. of carry the embers with you and then with the embers, you can loan them and then you add some sticks, boom, you got the fire going each time. If you have to start from scratch each time, if the fire has gone cold, that's a whole different story. And I think there's really some, like the fact that you do it daily, which seems insane because it's, oh my God, it's so much work, it's so much harder. Paradoxically, it may actually be easier because you have set it up with this level of, I mean, the beginning is going to be hard. But then once you get going, I think it makes more sense than, uh, than any other approach. Well, once you got 10 years streak going, then you got all the pressure, you know, to, uh, we got got to get this one today. Can't break it now. Right. You know? There's the habit of writing and then there's the habit of noticing. Um, mm-hmm. And in many ways, the, the habit of writing is it's some ways easier. You know, it's a it's a box that can be checked. Um, and I'm a little type A. So um, so I, I can get behind that. The the noticing habit is it takes more effort. You know, it's more about like, okay, I'm in the lineup at like Costco and I can just try to endure this like frustrating experience where I just want to get to my next moment because this isn't where I want to be. This isn't like an enlightening experience or I can just, I can try to be here and I can try to notice, slice this experience open because there's something beautiful if I open up to it. That's the habit that matters to me more than the writing of the poems. The poems are are the sort of structure, I guess, that keeps me honest. <laughs> so you're saying the kind of, in a way, I mean, not even in a way, it is a mindfulness practice of just uh, really being present, really paying attention to your surroundings, really, and not just pay attention in a passive kind of way. It sounds like you're paying attention in a looking for beauty in places that may not be your most obvious uh, beauty-seeking places. Yeah, being in line at Costco does not sound like the most exciting or uh, wonderful opportunity for the divine to shine through your daily life. (laughs) Uh, I guess the obvious question is how? Like, what do you find in line at Costco that can be 
Raider than being a, oh God, I'm so bored, let me shoot myself kind of vibe. You find, uh, how do you go about finding something beautiful in the mundane and sometimes even tedious? Human beings are endlessly fascinating to me if I, if I let them in. Um, and they're quirky, you know, like it's not all about the classical definition of beauty. Um, but if I, if I say sort of almost like I'm in dialogue, something that's going to delight me. So if I say, this sounds a bit weird, but I'll, I'll say in my head, like I'm in conversation with delight, you know, I'll say, okay, okay, delight, I'm ready for you. Show me, like show up. I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm ready for the details to surface in, in this experience that's otherwise totally ordinary. And, and really life, I mean, that's why we, that's why most, you know, middle income people take a holiday two weeks of the year because the rest of life is repetitive, right? Parenting uh-huh. repetitive, work is repetitive. And, and then they say, okay, I'm going to take these two weeks holiday and, and this is going to be where all the magic is, is, you know, like it, intensely experienced. But that's, I don't know, that, that to me is a sad way to live. I, I would rather amortize that delight over every day. And yet those days are repetitive. You know, I I do have to grocery shop and parent my kids, which is not always, um, you know, it can be, it can be repetitive and challenging and, and, and work. And, you know, these aren't all exalted experiences, but there is, there is beauty in little extraordinary moments if you're open to them are funny, like conversations that you overhear in the lineup at Costco or just the, you know, the tenderness with which somebody packages my bags or the conversation about, you know, why I purchased so many bananas and her genuine interest in my volume of banana purchase, like this, the relationship I'm building in this tiny moment with her. You know, it could just go unnoticed or it could be this kind of deeply sweet moment. I dig it. There's a, it kind of reminds me, there's this fantastic Zen poem from 1300 years ago or something that I just found a a translation of it. There are many variations, of course. This one says, my daily activities are not unusual. I'm just naturally in harmony with them. Grasping nothing, discarding nothing. In every place, there's no hindrance no conflict. And then the last two lines are the mm. really where it brings it home. It's a, my supernatural power and marvelous activity, drawing water and chopping wood. He's saying, look, he's talking about drawing water and chopping wood, which for people who lived a while back was the stuff you do every day, right? Otherwise you don't drink and you freeze to that. So every single person need to chop their wood and draw water from the well. That's like the most mundane thing it's the modern equivalent i guess for you of being in line at costco Costco. (laughs) you know exactly (laughs) that's their costco arguing whether or not we need five gallons of mayonnaise or not exactly so that's the drawing water and carrying and uh, chopping wood and he's talking about you know supernatural power and marvelous activity right so it's really at the core of uh, what you do which is really this idea of like finding something fantastic in the most seemingly bland ordinary circumstances which of course it is a superpower because if you are able to do that then life is fantastic then you know you really can i mean short of being 
torture by ISIS, I guess. Anything short of that is probably everything you run into in life. You're going to be able to find something beautiful in it. And that changes everything because, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, it's almost a cliche that you hear about how, you know, our thoughts, our mind, our approach to things, our attitude shapes the experience. And to some degree, of course it does. You know, of course there's an element that, you know, everything around us is filtered through our thoughts. And then by the time it gets internalized, it has to go through the filter of our mind and our perception, the way we perceive things. And so in that sense, the way we perceive something the way we are able to tell that story to ourselves of what's happening around us is at least as powerful as the thing happening around us to begin with. You know, of course, there's an objectivity out there. There's an objective world that you may not be able to do anything about. Things happen whether you like it or not. Some stuff you have no control over. Sometimes you are stuck in line forever. There's nothing to do with it. But the way the story you tell yourself about it, the way you're going to feel about it, the way you're going to that you do have a little bit of power on. And of course, I say a little bit because sometimes, you know, it's, I would love to go further and say that that's all there is. I I have a hard time seeing uh, how it could be when, you know, when things are truly, absolutely atrocious, when you are getting tortured by ISIS, when there is something, then, you know, I don't care how what a genius you are. I don't know that you can tell yourself a very good story about that. Even if you just are able to turn the mundane, not the dramatic, not the horrendous, not the, oh my God, I feel I'm getting ripped to pieces kind of thing, the just mundane, the boring, the tedious, turn that into something wonderful, well, then you are a superhero to me, you know what I mean? Because you have done something that changes radically the quality of your life. And by default, because you're going to have a different attitude, it probably changes the quality of a lot of people's lives around you. Well, either that or it's really irritating. (laughs) You'll have to ask ask Pete. He's forever... um bothered by the fact that I don't edit the poems before I share them. He's like, could you read them over once? (laughs) Actually, I can't. (laughs) Because if I do that, then it it just shifts it into something. Of course. Uh, You ever go out and do them live? No, I don't. I don't love public speaking. I do it. I do it for sort of my day job on the Echo side um, a little bit more. But um, but that when how you describe writing, Daniele, that, mm-hmm. that to me is the like the experience of being on stage um, is a little bit terrifying. Um, I do record them um, and share them by video. I was moved by the, the inaugural poet um, that we all watched oh last week. She's ushered in. We'll see more of that performance poetry that she she did, you know, with such um she was perfect. You know, she didn't have, sometimes the affect that performance poets bring is a little too much for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was just, she was just right. She hit the, she hit the most perfect hopeful note on that day. We certainly needed it at the moment. Well, you do make me feel a little better because you know, all this stuff about your writing and I feel so envious of your ability to be so free flowy about it. But then you're right. I, people have their different niche thing. Because, yeah, if you put me in front of an audience with a microphone, I can do it in my sleep. You know, that's one thing that just does not raise one heartbeat or I don't, I feel completely relaxed in the flow. So, okay, 
thank you for boosting my <laughs> a little bit now after crashing it brutally. It's funny though, because you know what you're saying, there's so much Zen in the stuff you say, like both what we were saying earlier about finding the miracles in the ordinary, but also even in this concept that you absolutely refuse to edit the poem, this very much is like Zen calligraphy, where it has to be done all in one stroke. You know, whatever thing you do, it needs to be done all in a continuous flow. There can't be a break in the action because if there is a break, there is a thought. If there is a thought, there is a self-criticism, there is judgment, there is all of this. It has to be part of this flow practice that can only happen if you just do it. Just go for it. There's nothing in between, which is very much from the sound of it, what you do with this idea of, nope, I'm not editing. Once it's done, it's done. Mm -hmm. And... Um, very interesting. So I'm not, I'm no student of Zen, but I made earnest efforts at, at meditating, you know, taking good, good, solid, long vows of silence at crazy retreats all over the world. And the practice of mindfulness that I take some issue with, and that I think is different from how I approach the mindfulness practice in poetry, I understand a more conventional definition of mindfulness as it's kind of paying attention non-judgmentally to mm -hmm. our life. This equanimous, you yeah. know, what will be will be, and we let the emotions we observe them, and we don't we don't attach or have aversion. You know, we just we just observe. Mm -hmm. And and for me, the piece that I have found so delicious over ten years is is not that it's reaching for for that like it's it is attached <laughs> you know mm -hmm. it's like Sorry. it's reaching and kind of hunting for that joy and saying like okay beauty okay magic like i'm i'm looking for you and i'm gonna find you like you can't hide from me um and so i don't know if that intention is like tilted too far in the attached in the attached side to be um to be kind of a pure mindfulness practice it 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 works for me to slow me down and, and, and kind of anchor me to the present, but it, it doesn't seem to be like what John Kabat-Zinn or some of these other mindfulness practitioners that I've read, I think would get behind. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, with all the due respect, but fuck them, you know, it's not about, <laughs> uh, it's uh, no, not even in a hostile kind of way, but yeah. just everybody's got their thing. It's about really at the end of the day is about what, elevates the quality of your life yeah. is not you know even i think like it would be the most anti-zen thing ever to have this practice that everybody need to copy absolutely identical and be passed on whether it fits or doesn't whether whether it's a neat fit for you or whether you have to if you have to force it it's not zen at that point you know in mm -hmm. that sense it's like yeah you need to have a discipline yes you need to have something that may not come natural but it needs to be yours you know what i mean it needs to make sense to you first and foremost so you're taking the same concept of just paying attention of being there of being and you add your own twist to it in a way that make more sense to you and my guess is that that actually your approach makes more sense to a lot of people because the whole non-attachment thing is uh, it's a hard pill to swallow for many, many people. So I think, if anything, we can just say that you have your your own school of Zen, so to speak. You know? <laughs> like, I don't think there's one way that everybody needs to follow. I think that would be really the wrong way to go about it. I find the... Uh, 
I find this very, very Bruce Lee of you, you know, take what's out there, adapt it to yourself and make it your own. That's very, uh, you have your own Bruce Lee poetry going. I love it. Best compliment ever. Uh, and uh, speaking of which, I remember I saw a poem that you actually did about Bruce Lee not so long ago. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I might, um, I might be in the minority of people who, for whom Bruce Lee's influenced my parenting. Maybe not. Um, but uh, let's talk but, about that. Let's talk about the parenting business for a second. So, I mean, one thing that you were saying about the origin of all the. Um, about the daily writing of poetry for you was this idea that you know everybody's telling you the first year of your baby's life is the greatest thing ever and you're there and you're like yeah kind of i guess you know because it's like mm -hmm. after diaper number 10,025 yeah. okay yeah oh look the baby's crying again for the 72nd time today and it's uh, I want to beat with a stick, everybody who tells me, the first year of your baby life, so fantastic. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? They've never been through the colic years, that's for sure, the colic week. <laughs> well, yeah, it's yeah. brutal. I mean, we had a kid who had the colic so bad one time that he would cry, and we would try to comfort for an hour and trade off, but the crying would go on, and we had a friend over one time, and he endured three hours of this, and then he just vanished. He never showed up again. He just to this day, never been located, ran away, left his fiance, and decided that wasn't for him. So yeah, it is not the grandest of moments. Sometimes it's the bottom. Yeah, the longer run, you're absolutely right. The longer run, sure. But, and, and you know, even the shorter run, there are the moments, right? There's like, oh my God, this baby's adorable. Oh, this is fantastic. This is okay. But yeah, that lasted 47 seconds. Then there are the other 23 hours. And it's like, I don't know, man. It's like, and again, say, I don't expect my experience to be the same as everybody, but I find it brutal. I find little babies like the toughest mirror one can ever put to oneself because it's rough. And on the other hand, I find it so much easier with each year that goes by. They grow older. You can have a conversation with them. You know, I find it 100 million times more stimulating and fun so if it was up to me the first year or two or three i would just leave them in fast forward to get like i don't see the beauty in those moments i see the get me to the end please get me to where we can actually start having fun because this is yeah that's where no matter how much i can try i'm not gonna find the beauty in it i, I or i do but it's not worth the other 23 hours and 59 minutes a day kind of thing well be careful what you ask for because she'll be asking for the keys soon enough and then the whole new segment begins right but i don't know i'm so and i think this is also temperament wise right you know i'm so much more well suited to deal with uh, older kids or teenager or adult problems than I am with uh, baby crying kind of thing. Like I literally would have to put, uh, I would put music, I would put opera in my headphones while she cries. And because, you know, I see that you're crying, so I don't need to hear it. I know that I need to do something about it. I don't need to hear the constant feedback of the for the next seven minutes while I'm trying to figure it out and help you. And all it's going to do is pick me going to hop off a window. So no, I'm just going to go in another space where I don't hear the sound, but I'm taking care of you, you know. But like, you sound like you had, uh, you know, 
a little bored, but nothing quite to the level of uh, psychotic drama that my sweet self endured. Yeah, no, you know, it, it really, I mean, it, it wasn't hard in the sense like, you know, I didn't have a colicky baby or um, like there's, you know, there's a thousand million experiences that would have been harder. It was just, it, I didn't expect it to be tedious. It was uh-huh. just, it was like a quiet groundhog day of the same thing over yeah. and over. and. And it kind of made me want to scratch my eyeballs out. Whereas Pete, like my husband, that's his, that is his, he hit his stride on like, you know, day one. That's his, he is the baby whisperer. He loves those pre-verbal, just like tuning into their little physical beings. And like he'll, you know, he's that guy that'll grab anybody's baby and just, he's, he's really natural. For for him, when our kids both hit three years old, like that, that's where I hit my stride, and that's where he first stumbled. Um, so oh, yeah, that's funny. That's yeah. really interesting about temperament. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. I think also that messes with my ego because, like, I thought I had these, uh, you know, baby magic abilities because. I could play with the baby for 20 minutes and they have the time of their life and I feel great. Look, I'm making them, they were miserable and I'm making them smile and this. So, you know, I would do great as a sprinter, not as a long distance marathon runner. You know, yeah. it's like when Bidut's number 27 hits and the baby's still there and I need to come up with something else to entertain them. That's when I'd be like, oh, that's not what I pictured. I was going for the highlights, not for the whole... Uh, <laughs> 22-hour movie kind of thing. And, uh, but yeah, that's, I I think also there's some level there of uh, pressure and expectation that people put on you. You know, when people say things like, oh, make sure you enjoy every minute of this year or two because they're going to go by so fast. I think a lot of people feel this pressure that it's supposed to be magic happening on the daily basis. You're supposed to feel this never-ending love constantly. And when you don't, you feel like, what's wrong with me? What am I doing? I'm a horrible parent. I just want to, you know, what's happening here? What's, I found that personally very confusing, you know, that, uh, yeah, whether it's more dramatic, the way I'm making it sound, or whether it's a little more mellow, the way you say, where it's just the repetition, the tedium of, okay, it's like we've been doing the same thing for 300 days already. When is it going to change kind of thing? Still, there's that voice in the back of your head that say, hey, you know, all these other people are having their fantastic experiences with their babies, and you are here bored or annoyed or angry or whatever, there's really something wrong with you. And I think it's a really healthy thing for most parents to remember that not everybody's going to have the teeth baby whisperer thing going on 24-7 for the first few years. Maybe you're going to be doing a lot better when they're a little older. Maybe you just need to get through it. Or maybe, you know, again, that idea that it's not one size fits all in this case, that... Uh, people's ability to create a bond with their kids may come in very different ways over different periods of time. You know, I did it all before the age of social media. Like I can't Mm -hmm. imagine, I can't imagine that now. I mean, I actually really, you know, I I think that is the, um, it's been talked about so much, so I'm not going to say anything new here, but 
an experience like that through the prism of seeing other people's, you know, highlight reel. Um, and then I think of my own kids, they're young enough that they're not on social media, but, you know, they will be eventually and, you know, how they'll see, you know, the experience of like coming of age, at, you know, in contrast to everyone else's highlight reel and just trying to prepare them for that is a curated feed of yep. best of the bests and nobody's having an airbrushed experience. It just looks like it. Yeah, I can't imagine a worse thing than going through the seventh grade in the time of social media. Oh. It, it was bad enough to be embarrassed in a, just the school and having people give you a hard time. Can you imagine the whole world? Yeah, that's uh, that would be bad <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and, and I think it's true, like this idea of the highlight, the idea that, you know, of course, social media is not reality. It's not you, people take one experience, one moment and shine the spotlight on it, which is there's nothing wrong with it. As long as you understand that that's one experience and one moment, that's not how actual people are living. And I maybe didn't make this clear earlier, but for me, you know, with the poems, they aren't all meditations on like the most exquisitely beautiful thing that I observed that day. Uh Um, I wrote a couple days ago about my daughter burning her hand on the fireplace. Like that wasn't a great or my mother-in-law who fell and broke her elbow. And it's just piercing the kind of tide of time (laughs) that that otherwise just kind of ebbs. And then all of a sudden the day's over and the year's over. And you're like, did I, was I there for that? Like, did I show up? You know, did I show up every day? But I guess that's where the social media thing, I can understand it because sometimes people are like, okay, I'm going through this day. That's not the most fun ever, but I had this one great moment. So I'm going to shine the spotlight and put it out there. Mm. It may not necessarily be just an ego driven, everybody look at me how cool I am. It may be a thing where people are also just trying to remember something good that happened to them. The problem is on the receiving end of the audience when they think that that's all that that person's life is like. And they're like, no, trust me, it's not like that. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing the daily poem thing, but I was doing like when, when my daughter was tiny, as soon as she could say anything, or even when she could barely kind of, when she was doing stuff, I would write it out. And more often than not, there would be some hilarious thing that were happening more or less every day. And people are like, man, that's the greatest thing ever. I love it. I'm like, yeah, that took 47 seconds of the day. That there were the other 20, you know, it's like those things do happen and it's important to notice them. But then there's all the rest of the time that is like, that's not all highlight real. And, and I think that's an important thing to be ready for. That Yes, mm-hmm. you want to be there for the highlights, but, you know, you're, you need to be both a sprinter and a long distance runner at the same time. Well, and those great 47 seconds are what get you through. Absolutely. I remember when they were teeny tiny and the, the first time when they're reaching out and touching your face and just realizing that these hands are reaching. I mean, that's gold. Yeah. Despite all the diapers, just to have that makes it all worthwhile. We're having these crazy rain bands through here right now. This part of California is acting like Hawaii and the number of rainbows we're getting over the past three days. But that's going to be over in a week, and it'll be dry and not rain again until, you know, next November. But Pretty much. We'll kind of remind you of what's possible. Mm, I love that. We have to talk about the Echo, because I don't actually understand what you guys are doing there. And I'm wondering, your focus on the written word, is that made more difficult by being in a time of 
where everybody's taking pictures constantly and sort of just building their memories with photography and video is the mm. word being left behind and are you guys here to save it <laughs> yeah great question so i started the storytelling company 22 years ago and it was originally a, a custom book publishing company that's all we did and the whole idea was born out of missing the chance to get my grandmother's story so she I was raised by a single mom, and so she was a big part of my life, and I'd always planned to get her story down. And then I went away to university, and she fell and broke her hip while I was gone. And I came back to town. She came out the other end with a new hip and no long-term memory. It was literally like a delete button had been pressed on her memory. She just never rebounded from the anesthetic. Wow. And that was it. That was like this just erasing of my roots. So, so I, you know, I ended up brooding over it and, and regretting and, and berating myself for procrastinating. And then I thought, well, I'll sit down with the family I have left. So I interviewed my mom and her brothers and I really, you know, I fell in love and, and realized that's, that's the kind of storytelling I wanted to do that sort of long form on the journalism side, you know, that's what lit me up. So, so I started this storytelling company and that's what we did. We did books for years. And then I remember saying, you know, I grew a team and, uh, and I remember saying to them at one point, uh, this was, I guess, about seven years ago, maybe. And I said, my big, my big speech was, okay, let's not be blockbuster video. Like if the book's going down, we have to reinvent ourselves. You know, we're, we're storytellers. We're not actually book publishers. We don't have to be wed, wedded to this medium. And so we reimagined ourselves, you know, to do story across all different media. So, you know, digital and video and, you know, storytelling training and consulting and all these things. And then, and we do that work. We, we do a lot of that work, but, but by and large, the majority of our work is still commissioned books. The book has done nothing but like certainly in our world, like continue to be in demand. And I, I think it's to your point, Rich, I think it's the exact sort of result of the effect of that ephemeral we capture things like you know so in such a sort of fleeting way right like we capture video we you know social comes and goes and you know and then and then social you know evolves even to be snapchat which like is you can't even see i don't know like how long is it a couple hours later or whatever and this almost like ricochet effect of saying like oh like what i crave something more durable, like something that like is actually like a deeper dive into what I really stand for and what I've done and making meaning of this messy pile of memories, which is what story does so beautifully. And it does deepen relationships with people. Like when stories done authentically and honestly, you can have, whether it's someone in your family or, you know, whether we, you know, read stories of people we don't know, um, you know, when we can find connection points because their experience resonates for us in some way, even if it's just in a, the emotional tapestry of what they've gone through, not the circumstance. That's, that's powerful. That's, that's like healing stuff. So that's what seems to keep, <laughs> keep our, like the paying side of my, of my gig afloat um, is that it hasn't gone away. Um, it's, it's just gotten busier, which is, which is fun and great. That's good for us previously analog folks. I hope the digital generations will find out about these books before it's too late because they don't seem to give a shit. By st like statistically, like book sales haven't gone down. 
And there's all this, like, there's this sort of like crafty resurgence, right? Like the millennials and the Gen Zs, like they're canning now and they're knitting. And there is this, like, even it's, it's, it's trendy, but, but it's real also like this desire to, to slow down, I think, and make something that can be like touched and seen and felt analog, you know, even like vinyls seen a resurgence, right? And it's not just all hipsters. Like there is, there's something, there's some human need that's fulfilled, I think, that is not fulfilled in the purely digital ephemeral. 10, 20 years, will I still be saying this? I don't know. But for now, maybe it's a transition point. Um, but for now, they're, those worlds, the the book publishing, traditional trade book publishing industry is doing just fine. That's fascinating. (laughs) I guess, yeah, it it really changed. I think like it's so, it's a different world because, you know, people before used to go to Borders or Barnes & Noble and they would just walk around and find the books they wanted. Now, of course, when the traditional bookstores are kind of going away in favor of Amazon, where there, you know, there's simply a lot less bookstores, I'm sure that people still read. It's just a different way to go about it. Like it's a different way to be noticed as an author. It's a different way for people to find that you exist, that your work exists, rather than you know you're walking in the bookstore and you're looking at the books in that particular section kind of thing. But yeah, it's interesting how it's transforming. And ultimately, I'm interested in the fact that yeah, you say on one end you go through the written world as a primary way of storytelling. But as you were saying earlier, you also have zero problem with photography or video or other things, and you're actually looking to expand because ultimately all of it is storytelling. You know, mm-hmm. there are, these are all just different techniques to tell a story. And, uh, and in that sense, yes, your wonderful husband, who's one of my favorite humans ever, is uh, pro at this, right? Is there something that he doesn't use for storytelling? You know, he's a musician, he's a director, he's a writer. He, he can ultimately, it's the same thing, just filter through different tools that he brings to the job. And I okay. love that. You know, I don't have that, like, I admire deeply people who have so many. I have some, but they all tend to be revolving around words more than not. Mm. Whereas the ability to do it with uh, a song, with an image, with a film, that's fascinating to me because I recognize it. It's the exact same thing. You're just using different tools, but ultimately it's all about storytelling. Well, I feel the same way about Pete as you. He's also one of my favorite humans. And also I am like music to me is, I mean, he might as well be like flying a rocket ship. Like It's just something right. so outside of my abilities that... Yep in my world, it would be like, he uses the blue pen one day and the green pen and the yellow, you know, in, in his world, got access to these wildly different outlets for his, for his storytelling and creativity. And And, and what we are saying about storytelling is very much related to kind of your point for what you do to begin with, because ultimately, I mean, to me, storytelling is one of the things that make us human that defines us as humans being more than anything because you don't see a group of deer sitting around the fire telling each other story they may have many other talents but that's not one of the humans have this thing where we tell each other story we interpret reality there's a filter through our interpretation of reality and again it kind of goes back to that notion of uh, there are objective stimuli that the environment around us provide but then there's the filter that we 
those stimuli need to go through. And by the time it reaches us, we have interpreted the stimuli and we are telling ourselves a story about them. We don't experience the thing in itself as much as we experience the field, like the filter version. And the filter is powerful and it can do tremendous thing. You know, we can, uh, we can make ourselves horrendously miserable in the fairly happy circumstances. We can be somehow seem to float through in the middle of horrendous circumstances. And so much boils down to the stories we tell ourselves. Uh, the stories are the stuff that inspire us. The stories are the stuff that uh, give you the strength to, to stand up and be strong when needed or when you can inspire you to be kind or can inspire, you know, stories are inspiration. They are essentially raw material for inspiring us to be the person we want to be. And so in that sense, I'm endlessly fascinated by the ability to storytell because it's not, to me, it's not just about entertainment. There's something great about entertainment. That's fine. But that's not what it's about. To me, it's really about living. It's like, the art of living as a human being is so much related to the art of storytelling. And again, people think storytelling like, oh, you need to be an artist or a musician or a writer. No, we are all telling each other stories all day long. Whether you're conscious of it or not, that's a separate point, but, but we're all doing it. So the quality of the stories that we tell ourselves can be literally the way that shapes our lives in a more negative or more positive direction. And again, this is not to deny that there is an external reality out there and that, yes, it's not just the thoughts you put into your head that change everything. Of course, you know, you want to also affect circumstances, not only the way you interpret circumstances, but, um, but the interpretation of circumstances, it's at our fingertips all the time our ability to affect the actual circumstances, that's a different story that we may or may not be able to pull it off, but that's not entirely up to us. So I don't know, I find this, um, I find it a super fascinating topic. And I love this idea that, you know, what you bring to the table in this regard about doing it every day as a mindfulness practice, as an active mindfulness practice, where you're looking for something. You're not just paying attention, but you're looking for something that will make your day better, more enjoyable, that will shine the spotlight on something that's going to make you smile by the end of the night. Um, I dig it. It's just a mm. beautiful thing. What's fascinating around that that idea of, of how we interpret, you know, quote unquote, the objective reality, what's fascinating about the, the family memoirs we do is every project, every, and we've done hundreds, every single project, you'll have siblings who experienced the same, quote unquote, objective moment. They were both there at the same time. Yep. Yep. Their memories of it are so different. Of course. Right. And so, you know, especially in this in this world of trying to to hold space for media doing their job, reporting good, noble media trying to do their job. I, I appreciate there's some objectivity that that is real. Yeah, of course. And yet, and yet there is still like this very real human prism through which objectivity passes and and it lands in us distorted by all the wonderful ways that that we're human makes for some great debates well, <laughs> on these family cool. memoir projects when those stories get sifted and little details get added and the legend grows with every telling of it that's kind of the, the grandness of it as well 
Absolutely. No, it's um, it's a strange thing to be humans. You don't see chihuahuas having this conversation all the time or the stories we tell ourselves. No, you're a chihuahua. You eat, you smell things, you pee on the sidewalk, that's it. You know, you, there's a very clear cut, uh, fascinating. But, you know, on a slightly, we danced around it with it for a bit, but I wanted to bring it back for a second because it's a topic that I'm super interested in. In regard to the parenting style, you know, we talk about, you know, babies and when they are born and all of that stuff. What about, um, what's your approach to, I don't want to be like, okay, give me your 47 second pitch on the, your philosophy of parenting. I, I see and hear so many different things of what people do with their kids, the way they raise them. And I see such a dramatic difference in, uh, in the way, really, it's a philosophy, like it's a mindset, like in the way people raise their kids makes such a difference in the way kids respond. I'm kind of interested what's, it, yeah, I understand this is a super open-ended question, but I'm kind of interested what are some of your thoughts in regard to parenting and essentially guiding these little humans out into the world. Pete and I are lucky, I think, in that um, I don't know that you know when you when you start out whether you're going to be aligned on how you parent. Um, but I think now how hard it would be if we weren't, because I think in some ways how we parent, I'm not sure that it's like super orthodox. So if I was to distill it down, like my disclaimer is like, we make way more mistakes than like <laughs> than slam dunks, constantly iterating of like, okay, this doesn't seem right. You know, looking back, we can already see like, oh God, we totally, our kids aren't doing any chores. Like, you know, we're like right. all, all over the place. But this idea of, of giving our kids, I don't know, love and freedom, I guess, are the two things that we agree really firmly about, if you can agree firmly about freedom. <laughs> so we send them to a school that's like the most opposite from any kind of tiger parenting. Like if they're learning math, I don't hear about it. Like it's really a, a play-based environment mm -hmm. where they are just encouraged to get to know themselves um, as people and, and find what sparks and lights them up and the freedom to like play and be outside and pursue what interests them without being too much required time spent doing the things that don't interest them. Whole question about whether that, you know, what that does for resilience and like work ethic and all those things aside. Sure. Um, there is something so beautiful and just, just looking, maybe it's this, maybe it's an extension of my poetry practice in some ways, which is just to like, just to sort of try to hold them away from me enough to observe them mm -hmm. and just see like, what is it that if I give you freedom, where, what will you do? Like, mm -hmm. what will you naturally be and do? Um, and then just like trying to pack them, pack them tight with tons of love, you know, that sort of attachment parenting kind of empathy approach, I guess, is where we, if we were to be like categorized, mm -hmm. we co-slept for a long time. <laughs> I nursed both kids for ages, you know, kind of hippie, I guess. <laughs> um, so whether you're like, you'll have to circle back in like 10 years when, 
both our kids are still living in the basement and you know, like, can't okay. pay the bills. And I'm like, God, why didn't I like send them to a school that believed in that? But, right. Yeah, I find it an interesting um, for me because I tend to be very, very. How can I put it? Uh, I don't put too many rules. I actually don't really give rules, period. I don't have, uh, hey, these are the rules of the house kind of thing. To me, it's like I just want it to be internalized where you learn stuff and I don't have to tell you some stuff. At the same time, I do find that I do hammer a little bit on the concept of discipline. And not in a, hey, you need to put in your two hours of whatever today. I want her to first understand why that would be important and for her to want to do it, to understand that like having a discipline with something put in, whether it is, uh, you know, simple stuff of like stuff that you do around the house or whether it is because uh, there are things that fascinate you and the only thing you're going to be good at them is by putting in the time. So if you want to play music, well, you got to play music on a daily basis a little bit or if you want to do... You know, so I do find an interesting tension between uh, the very freedom-loving approach of just I'm really not cracking down the whip in every way, shape, or form, coming down with harsh and tough rules, but at the same time encouraging discipline, because I do find that otherwise, uh, with absolutely zero structure and 100% free, like it's complete freedom in terms of choosing what you want to do. But I do want a little bit of discipline when it comes to doing the stuff that are necessary for things to work out well, that are necessary to get good at something. And again, I don't I don't care what you do, but I do care that you sort of that you develop it as an internal thing. Not that comes from me. Again, it's not like you do it to make me happy that you have to go and play guitar for an hour. It's more about you figure out what are the things that you want and wouldn't you agree that in order to develop anything, any skill, you need to put in the time and energy. And so I find that, um, I wouldn't say I'm struggling with it per se, uh, but I am finding that is an interesting balance to switch back and forth between the, hey, ultimately it's at the end of the day is to make you happy and do whatever you want to be happy while at the same time remind that discipline can actually be a tool in that direction, even though it may not feel like it right away, but like uh, work in that direction. So that, that's kind of where, I'm, what, where my mind is at these days. I'm thinking a lot about those uh, two poles of parenting. It's interesting how it's sort of, in the 70s, we were sort of just set out, you know, at six, seven years old, everybody had their bikes and would gather together in the morning time and off we would go. Um, this was upstate New York, and it really felt like as long as we sort of took care of each other and everybody came back, there were no troubles, there were no people watching over us at all times. And to watch, as my kids were little in the 90s, we learned a lot on soccer fields of how widely this parenting had become. It was from the helicoptering parent that wouldn't even let her kid eat a cracker because she might choke to the insane people that allowed their little boy to show up in a tutu to soccer practice and were perfectly fine for him not to wear the uniform when it's game time. Just shows the span of which people try to run these experiments on these kids are crazy. But I do worry about, I think people umbrelling over their children constantly and every second, if they don't have that freedom to, to touch the hot stove and mess up, um, it creates something that 
will be stuck in your basement for the rest of your lives because they're always, I don't know. I think it's a weird time. It seems to be a lot of different experiments going on. Yeah, sure. there, there does seem to be a, um, you know, if we play out the, the risks of what happens if you let your kids, you know, if you give your kids the freedom to roam, of course, the like the worst thing that can happen is is the worst thing, right? The worst thing that happens is the very worst thing, right? And you play that out in your head and it's a horrible thought. And the likelihood statistically of that happening is so infinitesimal. Yeah. And, and if we don't let them roam, statistically, the likelihood of them like not actually like cerebrally developing in a normal way is statistically really high, <laughs> right? And so like, if you just play the stats, I, I, you know, I can appreciate, I don't run anxious as a personality. So I'm, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't battle that demon, but I could see why, you know, if you, if you play that out in your head constantly, it would be terrifying to let your kids out, but it, you should, I think, run the statistical likelihood of the opposite. What is sort of interesting, Pete and I have for so basically our whole lives, really our whole careers been our own, like we've been agents of our own destiny. And, and that's, a, you know, that's just how that's our paradigm. And so I think it's hard for me to get behind asking our kids to do things that seem, you know, when my kid asks me, like, why do I have to do this? It seems like boring. I find it hard to be like, well, you just should. I'm like, like, yeah, I I don't do the boring stuff. Like I choose to do the stuff that I love to do. And I've sort of tried to architect my life so that I can, can do the most interesting things. And yet Pete and I both have like a crazy intense work ethic. So it's not like we're lazy. And in fact, I mean, like like our kid, our 10 year old, he has that, you know, he has this almost like pathological, like, like it's very, I don't know, it's born right out of like the apple fell right from the peak tree, this sort of like Calvinist, like whipping himself to like, (laughs) you know, he's like, for a 10 year old, you know, he's just like, he's, he's super prolific and, um, but Daniele, I hear you. Like I, you know, we don't need to push him for the discipline to work really, really hard. That kind of 10,000 hours idea of the thing that he loves, like that's baked in. Yeah. I ask myself all the time, like, am I, am I doing a disservice by letting him off the hook for chores? For example, like he's, he's medium okay at helping out, but not great around the house. And Cause it's boring and he's sort of learned through us a little bit of like, I also don't love housework and I try to earn just enough money that I can outsource some of the things I don't like to do. And he's sort of seen me do that. So I definitely will not write a parenting book. <laughs> it's like not I think, uh, coach I anyone think, on how to do it. I think the one thing, uh, like there was one thing you said there that I think that's what makes all the difference is when somebody say, Hey, why should I do it? This sucks. I don't feel like doing it so many parents fall back to the because you should kind of thing which is obviously a cop out and not an answer you know so any kid would be like that didn't tell me shit you know that's not helpful and so in fact I think you're absolutely right in the idea that we need to go one layer deeper you know it's like either I have a good reason to tell them why it needs to be done or then, yeah, I shouldn't ask them to do something unless I have a good reason. So unless you can explain it to somebody and then they feel 
that they can understand why that's important. Otherwise, to me, that's a parental failure because you haven't really communicated why you think that something needs to be done, needs to be done. This is because dad doesn't want to do them, so go do it. There's that, right? It's like we don't want to eat in crappy, you know, crappy, dirty, encrusted dishes forever. Somebody got to do it. I do it most of the time. Help me out here. Doesn't that make sense? Sure, of course it does. Okay, I'll help you. I understand it's boring, but whatever. Yeah, it's a team effort. Great, thanks. I'm glad we had that conversation. Then it's not the, hey, you should because I told you. Because that's the one thing that guarantees the fact that when people become teenagers, they will hate your guts and just do whatever they can behind your back, right? If it's uh, something that... Yeah, if it's something that we come to a decision together, like, hey, you understand, like, we agree that we don't want to eat crap all the time, that we want to cook good food, or that we want to have a semi-clean house, good, then let's do it. It's, again, it it becomes less uh, you imposing it from above, claiming authority because, hey, I'm the parent after all, rather than actually helping them internalize why something needs to be done. And um, and I think that's a key, key thing that a lot of people tend to forget about when they parent their kid, probably because they were never shown by their parents either, you know? Well, speaking of good food, the lasagna was incredible last night. And if I uh, teleport some your way, I would happily do it. Uh, <laughs> we are well over an hour now, and we have not talked about Richard Branson yet, which I'm dying to know. If this poem comes off good, do you get a free trip on, on the Spaceship One, and are you going to take it? Ah. Uh, so wish sadly i do not get a free like orbit mission out of a a 50 percent discount so it's only a half a million right i'd have to uh i'd have to write a lot more memoirs (laughs) i'd have to really nail the poems but um but no i've been doing more commissioned um poems which are really fun actually i'm i i decided for the 10th anniversary of bent lily that i would um i'd offer a poem to 10 10 not-for-profits in the world. Um, you know, we saw, I think, like Amanda Gorman, we saw the effect of, of that inaugural beautiful poet writing something in service, in this case, in service of a new administration and like a reset button on a country. So there, you know, there is something hugely powerful. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that I'm that, that my talent is at that level, but it's fun. It's actually really fun to, um, to either have a poem commissioned or or to to gift something to an organization and see okay how can this serve you i dig it uh anything else sam that you want to throw out there uh, where people can find your websites all the good stuff or or anything else that you like to put out there before we wrap yeah they can find me on all the all those social channels hopefully doing less curating the amazingness and more just trying to notice all of it. Um, so at Bent Lily and then um, my website's bentlily.com. And then on the Echo side, echostories.com is that website. And really on the Echo side, it's all the kudos goes to the talented people that work alongside me because 22 years in, my work there is less about writing those books and more just trying to attract the talented people that do that work. Sweet. I love it. Thank you so much for the chat, Sam. Really, yeah, really appreciate it. I'm going to make a point of noticing something beautiful in the middle of the ordinary today. Let's see. I will communicate to you the results, how that went. And I dig I it. Love it. Cool, love Sam. It. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you, you so much. Yeah, it was so, it was really fun. Sam, thanks so much. Perfect. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Big love Have- to you both. 
funky music means one thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Um, who thought it would become a lesson in parenting? Right. Uh, I kind of I knew I wanted to go there because um, she has she has a couple of fantastic kids. I've seen them the way they are, like in Zoom. Because I've been, you know, I'm a, since I'm trying to think how long it has been. Probably 2012. I've known. Uh, uh, her husband, Pete McCormick. He was even a drunken Taoist guest at one point, That's a right. bunch of episodes back. Pete is just seriously one of the most, one of the kindest, most fantastic human beings ever. Sam is a great person on her own. I'm really interested in how, you know, what two beautiful people do to raise good kids. So I kind of knew eventually we would find our way into that conversation. Awesome. Well, Beautiful. What else to mention? Nothing. We just say goodbye to the sweet folks. Hope you have a wonderful day and we'll touch base in a couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Sweet. D B O L E L L I. Good shit. R I C H I M O N and the numeral one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Daniele at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo! No, you don't. <laughs> in questo cazzo, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. I have nothing against chicken other than the fact that they are ugly and weird and strange. We've been yeah, having a great hour nice. here. Dun, dun, dun. I completely got lost. Are we doing the outro or the intro? We're right outro. Now? Oh, we're outro. Okay, sorry. So that's so. Let's continue. Did you ever see the movie Tombstone with uh, Val Kilmer and uh, uh, your accent? It just whatever that movie is you were trying to tell can me you about. Translate for me, please. I believe the word was tombstone. Yeah, that one. Exactly. <laughs> just as I was saying, you know, Tombstone. <laughs> now, most everybody thought. <coughs> sorry. Well. <coughs> We'll do a cut on there. Or not. That was something else. <laughs> no, that's maybe too powerful. <laughs> what do I have to do? One day the rod shall teach you. Get back to work. Funky. Podcasting. It's like radio, but you can cuss. I'm 50 now. Can you fucking believe that? <laughs> I was melancholy about it for like a good month. Like, uh... But I think I was more worried about dying at 49. <laughs> <laughs> so making it to 50 Making the 50 uh... like, fuck it. I think Louis C.K. may be a monster, but he had a great line. No one gives, there's no candlelight vigils for somebody over 50. <laughs> he had his chance. Why?